We've come to the time in our service for communion. And um, I know that there's been a lot going on this year with COVID and protests and riots. And, and maybe some of you are experiencing illness or um, marriage issues or other things going on in your life. I just know it can be a really difficult time with that and everything else that's going on in the world. And I came across a scripture in Habakkuk that I wanted to read to you today that I just thought was was very fitting and can show hope in the midst of all of the other things that are going on in our life. It says, though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will triumph in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I think we can just hold to that truth today. And as we take communion, um, just be appreciative of Christ's sacrifice and salvation. And no matter what's going on in the world around us, we can just rest in him, that he's got this under control. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this time that we can come and remember your son's sacrifice on the cross. Lord, I just thank you that uh, your blood paid that price for us. And that no matter what's going on in the world, we can just rest and have hope in you and in our salvation. Uh, thank you for loving us enough to send your son. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
So we've come to the time in our service where we take a moment to worship God through our giving. And um, it kind of goes along a little bit with what Melody had to say in our communion talk. You may be going through a difficult time uh, physically, financially, relationally. Like, it seems like if one thing is off in our lives, everything is off in our lives, right? We're struggling financially, and because of that, there's stress, and there's trouble, and so we're struggling relationally, we're struggling emotionally. If we're struggling relationally, then that affects other parts of our lives. So today, I just want you to know that God does not grow tired of helping you, of helping us. The, the Israelites... Um, you know, the Old Testament Israelites made a lot of mistakes. They messed up all the time. And, and, and one of the biggest issues that they had was that, or maybe I should say one of the biggest issues that God had with the Israelites was that they watched God um, in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, uh, remember, as he led them out of Egypt. Um, they watched him part the ocean so they could walk through. They, they, they watched him turn um, bitter water sweet so that they could drink it. They, they watched this brand new thing called manna that never been seen before. And God provided for multiple millions of people that have left Egypt with the Israelites. And, and, and then when they complained about God, he gave them quail. So over and over and over again, they see the incredible, miraculous works of God. And yet over and over again, they turned back to idols, things made of wood and, and a clay and stone. And God gets a little upset with that, right? Like I would be too. If, if you've watched me do incredible things in your life and then you turn your back on me, that's a problem. And so because of the Israelites' continual sin in that, um, God allows them to be uh, plundered, to be taken captive, to, uh, to, to be punished so that they might turn back to God. Remember in the very beginning when Abraham, God first called Abraham, God said, here's the deal. I got one rule. You obey me. Uh, I'll be your God, and then you'll be my people. 
And as long as you listen to me and you love me and you serve me, I'm going to make sure that your crops don't fail and locusts don't come and the ground doesn't dry up and and I'm going to make sure that you have plenty and I'm going to protect you. How many, uh, many armies did God destroy when the Israelites did nothing because simply because they called out to him and yet over and over again, an army comes to their door and they run off to somebody else for help. So Isaiah the prophet comes at a time in Israel's history where they're struggling and and uh, they've sinned and they've turned away from God and they've worshiped other idols and Isaiah comes and he gives them this message in the midst of their punishment and struggle. Do you not know, have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth and he will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Sometimes the Christian life is a struggle, and and, um, leaning on God in times of difficulty is is, uh, is hard for us, and we want to turn to things that we know, like our own abilities, our, our, uh, our, our jobs, our 401ks, whatever, and um, I just want to encourage you in this time not to rely on things that fail and fall, but to rely on things that, uh, on, uh, not on things, but on God. And whatever you're going through right now, whatever struggles you're facing right now, God does not grow weary in helping you. And it doesn't matter if that's a relational struggle or a financial struggle, emotional struggle, a physical struggle. God is not weary in us coming to him over and over again, going, God, um, you know, whether it's God, I blew it, I need your help, or God, I just don't think I can make it, I need your strength, I need your help. He is present with us and, and ready all the time. So we worship him because he's a good God, because he doesn't grow weary, because he helps us continually, and we can come to him every single time that we have a problem. Um, and, and, and so we give because God is a good God, because he loves us and because he's present with us all the time. Let's pray. God, thanks for um, being with us even when um, things don't work, when there's struggles. Uh, the band just played the song, God... We get so caught up um, in seeing struggles and um, focusing on our pains and um, we forget that you're the God that parts the sea. You're the God that, um, that destroys the enemy army at our door. You're the God that lifts us up when we've fallen down. You're the God that forgives our sin, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You're the God that we can call on no matter what. And so help us to do that, God. And thank you for being present in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, you can give today on your mobile device, reallifecc.us. Just click on the give uh, orange icon there. Uh, since you're all here in person this morning, we've got a bucket in the back and you can give that way as well. Cash or check in the, in the bucket or through um, the app.
So isn't it funny that um, whenever, I, and, and I don't know, maybe you don't know this because you don't have to preach every week, but it seems like when I am working on a, a message or working on something happening, I, uh, uh, God tends to bring things into my life that cause me to have to put that stuff in practice, right? Um, and so if you lived with me, uh, I hope you wouldn't do this like the rest of my family does, uh, but uh, every so often, uh, kids or the wife will um, be like, hey, uh, didn't you just preach about that? Or didn't you just talk about that? That's really bad when they do that. But anyway, they get the opportunity to do that every once in a while. Um, and so this week and the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about joy, and we've been talking about where joy comes from, and uh, some several different things. We're going to mention some of those in just a minute, but... Um, it, it just is one of those weeks where it seems like there's lots of things to be joyful for, but it's difficult to have joy. Um, and even this morning, you know, I've been really excited that uh, since we've been back in person, we've showed up and kind of things have just worked and it's been really good. And um, we got a bad file in our ProPresenter thing this morning and it just took a long time to figure it out and it just wasn't working and uh, and the internet's not working in the building and so we're just kind of back and forth and uh, finding that joy is really difficult and so I'm, I'm preaching um, to you and to myself uh, today. But I want to start out with this, uh, with this statement, something that um, hit me today uh, or this week from our uh, study Joy is not a product of where you've been, but where you're going. Joy is not a product of where you've been, but where you're going. Now, um, I, let that uh, process that for just a minute, because typically what happens is uh, something good happens in our life, and then we experience joy, right? So um, you get you get a bonus, you get a you get a something. Uh, let me give you let me give you an example of uh, something kind of silly like that. Uh, Andrea and I took a trip to Oregon um, five or six years ago. I think we took the family. I don't remember what was going on, but we went to Oregon and uh, filled up one time, filled up the suburban one time at a BP station. So I, we don't have those in Kansas, but uh, out on the greater Northwest, they have uh, BP stations all, all over the place. And, and so the joke is, where do bees go to the bathroom? BP. Okay. So anyway, um, so we go, <laughs> we go to the gas station, we fill up one time, and we get back uh, here to Kansas, forgotten all about that, right? It's no big deal, uh, whatever. And all of a sudden, we get this letter in the mail or an email or something. I don't know how they got it. And they're like, hey, there's a class action lawsuit against BP. Um, they, I don't, they did something with debit cards or credit cards. I, I don't know. Something happened, and so there's this class action lawsuit, and you're a part of it. And so just do nothing. And I said, okay, I, you know, this garbage all the time you get and whatever, and I don't ever pay attention to that. Um, we got our second uh, check just under $100 uh, this last week from the class action lawsuit with BP. Just showed up in the mail. Uh, we're like, where does this come from? I, I mean, it's one of those things that I would have just, like junk mail, I would have just thrown away. Uh, but I looked at it and I thought, oh, well, that's really weird. Where'd that come from? So I opened it up and anyway, it's a check. We typically experience things like that 
And then we feel joy, right? Woo, I'm happy. I got a little extra money, uh, goes to pay on something or whatever. So we typically experience joy after something good has happened to us. Let me give you, uh, put this in a little more uh, maybe understanding for all of us. Do you have more joy when planning a vacation, right? I'm going to go out of town. We're going to get away from the week, for the weekend, for the week, uh, whatever. I'm going to go do something. I'm going to go somewhere. I'm going to get away myself or my family. Do you have more joy when you're planning that getaway? What to do? Where are you going to go? What are you going to wear? Or do you have more joy during that vacation when the airline lost your luggage and you dropped your phone in the river, and uh, let's see, you got food poisoning from that fancy restaurant that somebody wanted to go to, uh, and you busted your budget, because that's always happens on vacation, uh, and then you get back from vacation, and then you should be full of joy, right? Because you just experienced all these things, and it was great, and you got away, and you realize when you get home that Monday is just a few hours away, and you got to go back to work. Joy is not a product of where you've been. Because <laughs> once it's over, we very seldom feel joy about that. Let me, let me say this way. Guys, you will understand this. Generally speaking, guys, you will understand this. You have a lot more joy thinking about the big screen TV you're going to buy and hang on the wall before you buy it and hang it on the wall. Because once you get it and you hang it up, you realize it's not as big as it looked in the store. Uh, or you have it for a month or two, and then your friend gets a bigger one, right? So look, joy is not a product of where you've been, because that's over. And, and, and that kind of joy, it doesn't last for very long. Something good happens, and we might be happy for a few minutes, but then it goes away. So joy is a product of where you're going. I think it's because joy is not reactive. It's not reactive, right? Joy doesn't respond to the things that have happened to us. It isn't drawn from where you've been, but joy is drawn from where you're going. Every week when I open Philippians, I'm reminded of Paul's imprisonment, right? Remember, he's in, under house arrest in Rome, a foreign country, a place he's never been before. He has a 24-7 Roman guard uh, with him, and he's writing to the church in Philippi that is getting ready in a very short time, within um, a few hundred days, maybe four or five hundred days, they're going to begin experiencing the most severe persecution that the church has ever experienced in, in history. Paul's writing to this church about what they're about to face. And, and, and we may think it's bad in America right now. Right? Maybe you're one of those, we're in the heart of the, of the country, maybe you're one of those who thinks it's pretty bad in, in America, right? People are forcing me to wear a mask, and um, I go into stores, and all they want is a credit or a debit card, and there's all of this stuff about a cashless society and what that means and that, how the government is selling us down the river and how to, who, the boogeyman is coming. I don't know. It's just a bad time right now, um, unless you're a conspiracy theorist. And then it's a great time because you've got all kinds of stuff to talk about. But in America, it's a struggle right now. But guess what? 
We are not being rounded up because of our faith in Jesus and fed to the lions in the Colosseum alive. We are not being brought into the Roman Colosseum in large groups and put in there and locked in with no weapons and no way to defend ourselves while gladiators armed to the teeth are sent in to slaughter us. Roman Colosseum was built in such a way, you may not know this, but they had sharks stored underneath the Colosseum. They could actually flood the Colosseum and they'd put sharks in there and they would throw Christians in and watch them be eaten and clap and cheer. It gets worse, I think, anyway. Today, in America, anyway, we don't have to be worried because of our faith that one day we're going to be grabbed by the police, we're going to be drenched in oil, we're going to be stuck to a pole and put up along Main Street and lit on fire in order to provide light for the street at night. That's what Nero did to the Christians in Rome. There's absolutely no reason for you and I not to be joyful people, even in the midst of our current situation. But we're not, right? And that's just it. Joy, as we understand it, is completely subjective. At no time in history has one person's lack of suffering, okay, somebody who seems to be things are going well, at no time in history has one person's lack of suffering made them more joyful than those who were suffering. So suffering is not an indicator of joy at all. At no point does circumstance truly dictate joy. Those with the greatest joy are often those suffering through the greatest trials. And those with the smallest amounts of joy, those people who are just not joyful at all, those are often the people we think should be joyful people. There's only one explanation for this, I think, and it's that joy is not earned. It's not attained. You can't meditate your way to joy. You can't reason a path to joy. You can't simply be good enough that joy would be granted or given to you. Joy is the byproduct of the Holy Spirit's work and presence in our lives. It is a fruit of his work in the life of those who daily follow Jesus. So joy doesn't depend on where you've been. Even in the midst of great persecution, followers of Jesus exhibited incredible joy. Now, if joy were dependent on our circumstances, even in the middle of this pandemic, we are still the richest nation in the world. Even with the coin shortage, even with the mask requirements, even with the job loss. But where's our joy? Why aren't we also the happiest nation in the world? Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, he's laying out his argument for joy. He's told us to expect joy in, in our lives, to be people who expect joy to, to come and to happen. He's given us an example of joy in the midst of persecution and, and struggle. And he's shown us that joy doesn't come from seeking our own benefit, 
but from serving and seeking the benefit of others. So Paul continues this thread in Philippians 3 with the command to rejoice in the Lord. Here's what he says in the first few verses of Philippians. Further, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. There's an exclamation mark, right? That's not a, if you feel like it, if you want to. Furthermore, because all the stuff I said before, this is a command, rejoice in the Lord. And it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, we who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. In Philippi, as in every other place where the church was present at the time, there were Jewish people claiming that Jesus wasn't enough, right? So the early church was made up of primarily Jewish people. They understood the law. They'd been following God for a long time. They'd had the promise from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were God's people, so it's natural that Jesus would come from the line of the Jewish nation. His line goes all the way back to King David, that he would come from there. The Jewish people were God's people. And yet when Jesus came and, and the disciples of Jesus himself started saying, look, it's not about the law, it's about knowing Jesus and having a relationship with him. Many of the Jews began complaining, began saying that, that Jesus wasn't enough. That to truly be sure of your salvation, you needed Jesus, and in this case, circumcision. Now, that was the thing that they landed on. Now, I don't know why they landed on that one uh, specifically, there were a couple other laws that God had given the Jewish people. Circumcision was meant to separate the Jewish people. It was something that no other nation or tribe in the world had even thought of doing, right? So this was another way that they could be separate from the world. But there were some other laws that, that the Jewish people could have landed on that I think would have been a little um, better. They could have said Jesus and no pork, right? That G The Jews aren't allowed to eat pork. But I don't know, maybe one of them had tasted bacon and was like, hey, this is worth it. Uh, I don't know. And so they were like, let's do circumcision instead of bacon. Um, I, I don't know. They, they could have said Jesus in adultery, right? Because that's a part of the law of, of God. One man, one woman, that's the way. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe they had some woman on the leadership team and she was like, look, men are pigs and they can't control themselves. And so they were like, ah, let's not even try that one. I don't know, maybe it was just like, it was Jesus in the Sabbath, okay? It was like, they were like, let's make that the big one. You gotta have Jesus and you gotta have the Sabbath. And they were like, well, look, I don't make enough money during the week. I gotta work on Sunday. Somebody's gotta open Quick Trip. We gotta, somebody's gotta get their coffee to those Christian people on Sunday morning and that's money out the door and so that's no good. And so they settled on, for whatever reason, uh, circumcision. So the Jews came around and they said, look, if you want to be a true Christian, if you really want to be sure of your salvation, you've got to believe in Jesus and you've got to be circumcised. Now for the Jews, that was no big deal, right? Because every Jew male was circumcised on the eighth day. That was part of the law. That's what they, they did. But Paul's writing to people who are not Jews. The people of Philippi, there were Jews there, but there were Romans. There's just a Roman colony, right? Greek colony, they're, they're there. This is not a, a place where people were circumcised. 
And so Paul warns followers that people will always try to add things to the gospel in an opportunity to control you. There's always going to be people who say Jesus and something else. Maybe it's Jesus and this particular denomination. That's how you get to heaven. Maybe it's Jesus and this certain way of doing things. Maybe it's Jesus and this particular day of worshiping that is going to get you to heaven. Maybe it's Jesus and avoiding these certain kinds of sins, and that's going to get you to heaven. There's always people who are going to say it's Jesus and something else, but Jesus is enough. And if you expect salvation because of what you've done for God, and not because of what God has done for you, then you've missed it completely. There's a surefire way to not get to heaven, and that's to add something else to Jesus, to make it so that he's not enough for us. And so the next 18 verses of chapter 3 of Philippians Paul is going to mention Jesus nine more times. That's, that's 10 times he will mention Jesus in 19 verses. You get an idea of what Paul is talking about, where Paul is going, what Paul's focus is. Paul is pointing us to Jesus instead of to ourselves. And so in the rest of the chapter, Paul is going to lay out Three ways that Jesus needs to be first in our lives if we're going to experience joy. He, he says that um, we need to lose ourselves to Jesus, that we need to stop holding on to things in our lives, and that we need to practice spiritual discipline in order to overcome our deficits. And all of this points to one truth, that if Jesus is first, joy will follow. If you want to have joy in, in your life, you want to be a person of joy, then Jesus has to be first. We, we've already seen that, right? So we said, look, joy doesn't depend on where you've been, but where you're, where you're going. And where do we as believers hope we're going? To be with Jesus. So if Jesus is first, joy is going to follow. That means you and I have a choice. According to Philippians, the first three verses of Philippians, we can put Jesus first in our lives or we can follow our, our flesh. And the Bible uses that term as a way of saying, look, you can either follow Jesus or you can follow your flesh, which means your desires, your, your wants, your, like the things in, in your life. We would, um, we would call it maybe passions. There's all of these things in, in our lives that, that we can follow, that we can chase after instead of Jesus. And oftentimes, we try to add that stuff to Jesus. And so we'll say, you come to church, and, and, and that's great, but you know, there's this other part to it. Paul says that is the flesh with its desires and opinions trying to get in. We've seen over the last few weeks that joy is a fruit of the Spirit's work in our lives that comes through our pursuit of Jesus. And so you and I won't find joy if we're following our, our flesh, if we're following our own desires, our own wants, uh, the things that we get, that what you see, what you taste, what you, what you touch, right? The, the Bible calls it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
Paul then gives us uh, really a perfect example of this. Look at the next few verses. Paul says that I have reason for confidence in the flesh. He's like, look, if, if it's not Jesus and it's the things of the flesh, I've got more reasons than anybody to expect to get to heaven. Someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh. I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. We talked about that already. Every Jewish male uh, was. He's of the people of Israel, right? God's people. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. That was the youngest son of uh, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and Jacob loved Benjamin the most. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. It was a leading religious uh, sect at the time. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is one of those people that we would look at and we would say, that guy knows exactly what he wants, and he's going to get it. In every way, Paul's life was, was perfect. And there are probably people in our society today that, that we could think of, we go, you know what, that, that, life, kind of, uh, that life that they lived is kind of, kind of perfect. Let me, let me give you an example. Like, I'm ready for football, okay? It can't come soon enough. We need something to uh, look at besides golf and cricket or whatever they're playing on uh, SportsCenter, ESPN. So, like, nothing's good out there, right? But football, hopefully, is coming. And so if we would make a football reference to this, we, we might say that Paul is like... Um, He's one of the Mannings, right? He's one of Archie Manning's kids. Uh, uh, now, Eli is a crybaby, and I don't like him. Um, but Peyton had a pretty good arm, and so he was all right. Uh, but Paul is like that. If you want a modern-day reference to this, look, he came from, like, he had the perfect family. He had the perfect upbringing. He'd been given all the right uh, opportunities. He went to the right college. He joined the right company. In the eyes of everybody, and not just Paul, Paul had it all. He was poised to be one of the greats in the kingdom of Israel. The problem was, he mentions it at the bottom here, the problem was it's great to be great in the kingdom of Israel, but you're missing the kingdom of God. So he goes on. What is more, I consider everything not just the good stuff in my life, not just the stuff that I've accomplished, the stuff that's happened to me, but everything in my life I consider a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Now, we kind of know that's true because we know a little bit about Paul's life. I think it's in 1 Corinthians where he goes down the list of the things that's happened to him. He says, I've been shipwrecked three times. I've been, uh, I think it's three or four times. He'd been whipped with the 40 lashes minus one. He'd been beaten with sticks. He's been um, uh, stoned, thrown rocks at until he was dead over and over and over again. Paul is uh, at the bottom of whatever is, is going on. He's getting dumped on all the time because of his faith in Jesus. I have lost all things, he said. But what's more, he's not sad about having lost all things. So I've lost everything good in my, everything that I thought was going to get me to the next level, get me where I wanted to be in, in my life. Not only have I lost those things, but I consider them garbage. 
that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Garbage. Your translation of the Bible is not uh, NIV, or maybe it's an older NIV, is, is, is going to say, I consider them filthy rags. What, what do we do with filthy rags? We toss them. Paul says, I consider it garbage. I consider it stuff that's not good for anything except to be thrown away, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. All that stuff he talked about in the verses preceding to this, circumcised on the eighth day, Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, um, killing Christians. This is not that, none of that stuff uh, works, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Comes from God. It's the basis of faith. He says, I want to know Christ, all of this, he's saying, look, everything else is garbage except this. I want to know Christ and to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Everything else in my life is garbage. Everything that I thought was going to get me to where I wanted to be, everything that was going to provide me with money and power and position, all of that is garbage. See, Paul had what all of us, or most of us at least, want. He was gaining prominence in his uh, career among his peers. He was gaining position and power among the religious leaders of his day. He was gaining fame by the people. Remember when we find Paul, when he comes on the scene, the first time we hear about him, his name is Saul, and he's standing watching the, the garments of those people who are stoning Stephen, the very first Christian martyr. And the next time we hear about Saul, he's gotten papers from the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and he's headed out to other cities around Jerusalem to find Christians, round them up, haul them back to Jerusalem, and then watch them be tortured and killed in the hopes that they will renounce Jesus and, and come back to the true faith, the Jewish faith. He was gaining lots of fame, and he certainly was gaining fortune. Paul had it all in accordance to the world. In the flesh, Paul had it, had it all, and he was poised to have more. And then he meets Jesus on the road to, Jerusalem, or, uh, road to Damascus, right? And all of that changed. Uh, let me give you an example. Maybe you've experienced this. This happened to me this not very long ago. I was playing a game with, with somebody. Um, have you ever played a game and you didn't really understand the rules to the game when you started the game? And then while you were playing it, you were like amassing points and you were doing really good and you're thinking, man, I'm going to win. I got more than that guy and this is going to be great. And then towards the end of the game, you find out that it's really the one with the fewest amount of points that wins the game. And you're like, oh no. And then every point that you get after that is just like a dagger in your heart, like, ah, this is terrible. And then now you dread points when just a few moments ago you were excited about getting them. That's what's going on here. Paul says, whatever I considered gain, I now dread those things. I don't want to have anything to do with that stuff. Paul, remember, is under house arrest, right, in Rome, 24-7 Roman guard. And had Paul appealed uh, before he left Jerusalem, or in multiple other next stops before he gets to Rome, had Paul appealed to his position, his pedigree, his, his piety in the Jewish faith, he could have been released and been free months and months and years ago. In the very beginning, if Paul would have just said, do you know who I am? 
I'm Paul. I'm the guy that killed. Like, Paul could have been released. He was a Roman citizen by birth. Rome, that means that Rome had no right to hold him. All Paul would have had to say is, let me go. And they would have set him free. It's funny to me that what we fight for here in America, and I think rightly so in many cases, is our freedom. Nobody tread on me. (laughs) Nobody tell me what to do. I'm not going to listen to anybody. I'm going to do what I want because I'm an American. That's what we fight for here. And then we read about Paul. And Paul is losing to, uh, willing to lose his freedom in order to follow Jesus. Verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ to the point of suffering and death. I want to be so close to to Jesus. I want to know Jesus so much that I'm willing to die. Not just stay in jail for for a few years, but to die because of my faith. To participate in Jesus' suffering become like him in his death because then Paul understood that that if I die in Christ, I can be resurrected with him. John the baptizer said it this way, Jesus must become greater, I must become less. We'll say it like this uh, today. To look more like Jesus, you've got to lose more of yourself. A lot of times in the Christian faith, we want to add Jesus to our lives. Uh, I'm successful, I'm doing this or that, I've got it all worked out, everything is okay, I just want to add Jesus to my life. So um, I'm going to carve out some time on Sunday morning to go to church, I'm going to carve out some of my budget a little bit to give to God, I'm going to carve out a little time maybe to serve a little bit, and so we just want to add some of Jesus to our lives. But if we're going to look more like Jesus, we've got to be willing to lose more of ourselves, Everything that Paul writes in these verses is pointing to this one inevitable fact of following Jesus. That if Jesus is the king, I'm not. We struggle with that, right? Because in America, we want to be the king of our own life. And not just in America. I think every nation in the world, that's the case. Uh, Just some nations in the world, they kind of beat that out of you when you're young. But not here. We raise people to, to believe that I'm the king of my own life. I do what I want. Nobody can tell me what to do. But if Jesus is the king, I'm not. And so what I want and what I consider worthwhile must take a back seat to what King Jesus wants. We've got to be willing to lose everything and have Jesus still be enough. I had to come to that place in my own life. About five years, four or five years into real life, if you've been here a while, you've heard this story before, four or five years into real life, the recession hit, and our house was foreclosed. That was our first house that we had 
we had bought. And um, there's some pride that goes along with owning your first home, right? I mean, I thought that was it. That's what you do. You get married, you have kids, you buy a house, you begin to save up to have the American dream. That's what everybody wants. And what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to have that house and you're supposed to build equity in that house and then you're supposed to sell it and then move up and it's bigger and a bigger dream, a bigger American dream. But that doesn't happen if the bank says you can't afford this house anymore and they take it from you. So we move out of a, a, a house that was ours, that I could do whatever I wanted to, that I made a bunch of improvements to, and we moved into a rental house. And then not very long after that, two of our three vehicles were broken down, and we were running crazy back and forth and all over the place. And it was an incredibly tough season, but a season in which I had to decide, is Jesus enough? If I lose my house and I lose the cars and, we don't, and, and my life looks terrible, like like part of the reason we want those things is because we want to look like we've made it. Like we have it together. But sometimes that doesn't happen because we want to look more like Jesus. I think one of the reasons we struggle to let go is because we hold so tightly to what we have. I think that joy comes from what we're getting, not from what we've got. Let's look at the next few verses. Paul says, um, I had it made in, as far as the world goes, my flesh, but I consider that all garbage. And then he says, not that I have already attained all this. He says, I, I haven't reached the point where I've, I've su fully surrendered to Jesus. That I've been willing to give up everything in my life. Or that I've died, been willing to die for him. Which, which by the way, is not true, right? Because Paul had already died for Jesus and then come back to life. Just throw that in there. But here's this guy, Paul, who's experienced all of that stuff. And he says, I still haven't arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. That's salvation, right? Jesus took hold of me because of this love that he has. He wants to have relationship with him. And so, um, uh, look, I press on to take hold of that relationship, that salvation, that promise for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. And we jump down to verse 16. See, I think Paul recognizes that he's come a long, long way, but he's still got a long way to go. I think one of the struggles that we face as followers of Jesus is thinking that where we are right now that what we've given up or what we've gained or, or what we've, uh, this place that we've reached in, in our lives, that we've gotten to this, to this level in our spiritual walk where we don't have to work out our salvation any longer. And I'm okay. And I've reached this place where um, I don't have to pay attention to what I think or what I say or what I do any longer. I've attained this level of spirituality that, that, kind of puts me over the edge. I've, I've gone past the tipping point, and so I'm all right, and I don't have to worry about my life anymore. I don't think anyone would argue that Paul was not light years ahead of us in our spiritual journey, right? He's the guy who wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. 
He's the guy whose shadow, if it fell on people who were um, lame in the street, if his shadow fell on them, they would be healed. His shadow. And he says, I haven't attained the goal. Because of that, even under house arrest, even after losing everything that he once held dear and that everybody around him would have held dear, he said he was constantly pressing on and forgetting what was behind in order to strain for what was ahead. And so if you want to put Jesus first, you've got to keep pressing on instead of holding on. So many of us want to hold on to our past and hold on to the things that we've got in, in our lives, to hold on to this place that we've attained in, in our lives. And it's keeping us from pressing on with God. Look, after God had led the Israelites out of their 200-plus year slavery in Egypt, one of their downfalls was that they held on to the past. One of the things that I think is so funny is that at, at one point, the Israelites are eating manna, right? God's providing manna every morning. They get up, and there's this bread-like substance. It tastes like honey wafers. I'm like, ooh, that sounds good. And they got to eat this every morning, but after a while, they got tired of it. And here's what they said. You know, Moses, back in Egypt, we used to eat fish and cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions, and we just had, it was just there, like it just magically appeared and it was great, and now you've brought us out into the desert, and we got nothing. That's funny to me, because they completely leave out the fact that they were slaves in Egypt, and they were forced to work long hours and make bricks and build Egypt up. Don't we do that in our lives, in our, in our minds? We remember things only the good things maybe, specific things, and we leave out other stuff. We hold on to stuff in our past, and we like, man, it was so good when I had that. I had that freedom, and I could go where I want, and I could do what I want. And we forget that when we went where we want, and we, we did what we want, life was miserable, and we were always getting into trouble. We always conveniently leave out the things that don't fit our narrative. Many who begin following Jesus or working with Paul stopped. They left them because they couldn't let go of the things that they had in their former life, their comforts, their cash, their friends. But if Jesus is the king, we serve him and we don't serve ourselves. So we must be looking toward what God has for us in this life and our real life in eternity. What's going to happen next and then as we grow in the faith, we should develop strong footholds so that we can constantly be moving forward. If you've ever been in recovery and you've gone to those meetings, you know how important it is to have those places where you can stand firm and you can move on. You know how important it is to let go of the things in, in your past that you've been holding on to so that your hands are free to grab on to the things that are going to help you advance. This is what Paul is saying We've got to continue to press on in our faith and our spiritual growth and our development. We've got to press on to the things of Jesus. And we've got to stop holding on to the things of the past. So you have to be willing to let go of the things you hold on to if you're going to reach for more. 
And I think one of those things that we may have to let go of in our lives is scary time, our freedom. Look what Philippians uh, goes on to say. Paul says, for I have often told you before, and now I'm going to tell you again, this time with tears, that many believers, many people live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame, is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship as believers, as followers of Jesus, is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people, Paul says, live for themselves. They're free to do what they want. They're free to do what they, what they please, eat, drink, and be merry. Paul says that, that those people, for them, their God is their stomach, right? And so what he's kind of saying here is that their, their God is their flesh. Whatever they want, whatever they desire, those are the things that are important to them. That's what they're going to go after. They put their flesh first and not Jesus. They do what they want. They do it when they want, but they're not really free. It's always been interesting to me that the things we use to prove our freedom, particularly to our parents, right? Uh, um, I've, I've got some kids. Um, thankfully, I don't think they're at this place yet. But often when we're growing up, we, we want to prove our freedom um, from our parents, right? I can do what I want when I want, and nobody can tell me what to do. And so I'm going to drink this, and I'm going to smoke that, and I'm going to... Right? We, do all the, we do all those things because those things prove our freedom. I can do what I want. But those things make us captive. And 40 years later, you're going, I'm going to prove my freedom. Because <laughs> you're addicted to this thing and you have to keep using it that, that you only started because you were trying to prove that you were your own person. Now you're stuck on this thing, and you're not free. You're held captive by this thing now that you have to do. As followers of Jesus, our citizenship is in heaven. And so our goals and our dreams should not be tied to this earth. But we should be looking forward to life with Jesus. Our goals and our dreams should be about what comes next and not just what is here. And that's difficult, right? I get it. I understand. I'm there with you. I want all of the things that everybody else wants. And it's a struggle constantly to put Jesus first above that other stuff. But if you want to put Jesus first in your life, you're going to have to give up some of the things that you think are freedoms. And the way that we do that is we develop spiritual disciplines in our lives, disciplines like serving or studying God's word or fasting. That, that means giving up food for a time in order to focus on God or, or maybe developing a consistent prayer life or joining with other believers for worship. These are spiritual disciplines and they help us overcome our deficits. The, the places where we think we're in charge, where our flesh is in control, where we put our flesh first, that's a deficit spiritually. And so spiritual disciplines help us overcome those fleshy deficits. And so the way you train yourself to put Jesus first instead of your body is by fasting. 
That's a way that we can overcome this need that we have, right? Paul said their God is their stomach, and for many of us, that's true. Whatever, I want, oh, it just tastes good, and I like it, and whatever, and, and, and Paul's saying, no, look, fasting helps us control our body so that we go, wait a minute, it's, my stomach is not in control of my life, my mind is. You can train yourself to look more like Jesus by giving up sleep, perhaps, in order to pray or study the Bible. I'm going to get up a little bit earlier, even though I'm tired and I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to do that so that I can focus on God. Putting a high priority on serving and being with other believers helps you to keep Jesus first, even when I'd rather be out at the lake, I'd rather be doing something else. Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven and our Savior, our Lord, our King is Jesus Christ. And he goes on to the end of that section to say that Jesus has the power to change us so that we look more like him. So let's put our politics aside uh, for a second and put our um, science, and, and I say science because we can't even trust the science anymore, it seems. Let's put aside even our personal freedoms. Given our current national situation, given what's been going on for the last four months, let me just pose this question to you and to me as well. If all anyone knew about Jesus the only thing that somebody outside of these walls knew about Jesus was what they saw from us in person or online in the last four months. Would they care at all to follow our king? This week, what do you need to be willing to lose in order to gain Jesus? Is there something in your life that you could put in place of what Paul says, the stomach, there's the God is their stomach? Is there something else that's become your, your God? What do you need to be willing to lose in order to gain Jesus? What do you need to stop holding on to so that you can grab more tightly to him? Maybe you're holding on to a relationship that is tearing you away from him. Maybe you're holding on to a, a, a job. Maybe you're holding on to some thoughts or some past hurts even, um, some struggles, some past sin, and you're holding on to that stuff. And because you're holding on to that, you're not able to grab more tightly on Jesus. So what do you need to stop holding on to so you can grab more of him? What spiritual disciplines do you need to establish to overcome the deficits of the flesh? I'm going to get up and read my Bible more. I'm going to spend some time in, in prayer. Not laying in bed necessarily because you fall asleep right then. But maybe I, before I get in bed, I'm just going to kneel down by my bed. Or I'm going to sit on the couch or I'm going to go outside. One of the things I've done recently, been going outside early in the morning or, or late at night and just sitting out there on the, on the deck praying and thinking. Look, if Jesus isn't first, your joy will quickly fade. And you won't find joy chasing after things of the flesh, money, power, position, pride, because joy doesn't come from the things of this world. It comes from knowing Jesus. And so here's our bottom line. I'm waiting wait until the end. You've heard that if you put Jesus first, joy will follow, and the reason for that is that joy comes from Jesus. Boom. The reason... 
The reason if you put joy first, or put Jesus first, joy follows, is because joy comes from Jesus. It comes from looking more like Jesus and less like the world, from pressing in on, on him, uh, or um, pressing on in him instead of holding on to your past. It comes from incorporating spiritual disciplines into your daily routine. So if you're ready to experience joy, you've got to be ready to surrender to Jesus. Because he's the king, and I'm not. Got to be willing to give things up. He's the king, and one day he's going to come back, and he's going to establish his kingdom forever. And so if you value what this world has to offer, you're not going to get Jesus. The world is all that you'll get. And there'll be no lasting joy. But if you come to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, Holy Spirit will develop joy in you. Not based on your past, but on the promise of your future. And an eternity with him. Perfection and freedom. Hope. Love. With Jesus. Let's pray. God, thanks for your love and your grace and your mercy. And thank you for calling us to something beyond ourselves. And um, God, we just come before you t today and, and, and say, look, we, all the stuff that we have in our, in our lives, the, 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 the power, the possessions, the, the, the money, our family, our homes, our, all of that stuff, God, we just go, it, it's not enough. And we need you. We want to live like you're our king. And that one day, the king is going to come back and the kingdom is going to be established and, and it's going to be a forever kingdom and it's going to be perfect and there's not going to be any of the garbage that we have to deal with right now and it's going to be wonderful. And so our joy comes from that future hope not from what we find in the world and not from what we can accomplish in our flesh. Our joy comes from following and knowing, being a part of your kingdom. And so God, today we surrender our lives and we surrender our stuff and we surrender our, our, our minds and we surrender the gods that our flesh has created for us. We come back to you because we know that you don't grow weary. That you are always there to help us, to lift us up, and you've always got that resurrection power at work in our lives. And so God, we thank you. Thank you for loving us. We thank you for being the king of our lives, and we thank you, God, for receiving us into that kingdom as we surrender to your son, Jesus. Help us to do that every day, a daily practice to lay our lives down for you like he did for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you are concerned about getting caught out in the lobby with a bunch of people, um, now is a good time for you to uh, exit while we sing this last song.